This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. Marcus Bubbleman Richardson, um, hash maker, cannabis aficionado, cannabis warrior. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, so today I'm really stoked to connect to a new acquaintance of mine, someone that you've possibly heard about, especially if you've been around in the cannabis industry a while, uh, like myself and some other colleagues we've had on here. But I'm here with Marcus Richardson. You may also know him as Bubble Man or BC Bubble Man. Um, but thanks so much, Marcus, for being willing to come on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I heard your interview you did with Dr. Mark Chaldon, and uh, I know that he hooked us both up. So I was, uh, I'm always uh, happy to do interviews with people that have, uh, you know, have a good focus and a good grasp on what they're doing. I thought that was a good interview you and Mark did. So I was, uh, yeah, happy to uh, take part. Yeah, totally. And for anyone that is unaware, uh, one thing that was really cool about our sort of connection between Mark Chaldon and everything is you used to have, I don't know if you'd even call it a, a podcast back then or not, but you used to have a show uh, called Hash Church that uh, Dr. Chaldon would would come on, it seems like fairly regularly, um, with some frequency uh, to talk about all things cannabis and cannabis extraction and stuff. So if, if anyone is familiar with Hash Church, you might have seen uh, Dr. Chaldon on there and, and Marcus is the, the brains behind Hash Church. And I saw you did Hash Church uh, 2.0 um, not too long ago, um, kind of revived it. I was familiar with it back in like 2014, I think, or something like that, kind of a ways back. The early um, days, yes. We're even in a 3.0 now. We did an episode last uh, Sunday, just a few days ago, we did a Hash Church episode. So they're certainly not as often as they were. I was doing them every single Sunday. In fact, I didn't miss a Sunday, I believe, for 167 episodes. Wow. So that was, yeah, 167 weeks. It was over three years um, without missing an episode. It was quite quite a challenge, and it did cause me a little bit of stress, but uh, it's because I realized I had something special there, and I wanted yep. to make sure that I didn't um, that I didn't pollute it or dilute it or you know affect it in a negative way. So trying not to monetize it, trying to keep mm -hmm. it authentic, trying to keep it transparent. Uh, and that was uh, easier said than done, but we've uh, managed to pull it off for the last, jeez, uh, I don't know, must be going on year five now, maybe, yeah. maybe even six of Hash Church. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's it's definitely a uh, a process trying to figure out how to maintain, uh, you know, programming like that without monetizing. It's something I'm going through right now of trying to keep curious about cannabis going and everything, but not bringing in sponsors or advertisers that might you know, affect, you know, what you say or make you think twice about what you might say or, or manipulate the, yeah, the authenticity or anything. And it, it's hard. So yeah, my hat's off to you for being, being able to do that for, for so long. It's very impressive. And anyone that's listening, if you're not familiar with Hash Church, um, I mean, we have a million things to talk about, but that's one you can dive into hours upon hours, years upon years of content um, there. So check that out. 
Um, Marcus, do you mind for um, for folks listening that are kind of newer to the industry, maybe aren't familiar with some of your background and and all the different things that you've been involved in? Um, I'm not sure how far back to go because you have um, interesting history with like hemp cultivation and and getting your licensing for all of that. But I guess as far back as you want to start, um, how did you come to um, build this this passion towards the cannabis plant? Where does that come from and, and kind of what got you interested in pursuing um, all the things that you've done over the years? Well, I'm definitely a very particular kind of individual. And at a very young age, I think I was about 14, I smoked my first joint uh, with a with a friend of mine, Steve McAvoy, behind the dumpster of the local, you know, Quickie Mart type uh, right. store. And uh, it was instant. It was just like right out of that movie, Half Baked. Abba Zabba, you my only friend. Like when they're all baked <laughs> and they're walking yeah. into the, the store. And it was right, just instant for, for me. Yeah, it was instant for me. So um, it really started right then and there. Um, I made the choice, you know, not to consume alcohol or tobacco or caffeine or pharmaceutical drugs or really any of the illicit drugs mm -hmm. aside from psychedelics and cannabis. Sort of stayed pure in that way and just focused my energies on those things. And I think. It's one thing to focus your energy on those things. It's another to make sure that you avoid the other things that tend to dilute the focus on those things in the first place. So being able to, you know, remove those things from uh, from my options yeah. really sort of gave me this super like concentrated version of, you know, getting into this into this plant. And I was really able to focus on it. Um, it wasn't too much longer. I was probably, you know, 18, 19 when I started looking into the hemp activism, you know, being from Manitoba, Bible Belt, center of Canada, very, um, you know, particular place to be, very easy to get in trouble if you want to mm -hmm. start playing around with cannabis. And the trouble there was real. It was it was jail time. You would do you would go to prison if you got caught with it. There weren't too many people getting slapped on the wrists uh, and letting being let go. So that sort of directed me, you know, towards this this hemp movement and you know there really wasn't a hemp movement at the time but i got into you know hanging out with a couple of key people one was martin moravchuk who ended up being one of the one of my partners and founders of uh, the manitoba hemp exchange hemp seeds unlimited you know and eventually uh, manitoba harvest the company that he built and and created with his his partners all of people who i introduced him to so i was very close into that niche we were applied for a license in 94 to get hemp growing legally in manitoba for the first time in 73 years uh, and we got the license so we were able to grow an experimental five acre field uh, experimental was the stipulation of that regulation and from 94 95 96 97 and 98 it was all experimental in 1998 the province changed the law uh, and they made it uh, well the country changed the law Ottawa changed the law from experimental to commercial which meant now you could actually create a business and start to uh, start making money and so that was really the first thing you know having that hemp store you know bringing the farmers over from the Ukraine finding low THC hemp seed that was below 0.3% THC in fact we had found the zolotonosha out of the Ukraine uh, which was actually 0.03% um Gorobrodko from the Institute of Bass Fibers had been approached by the DEA you know decades prior and told he could get rid of THC or he could get rid of hemp 
Now, hemp had been grown in the Ukraine for 100 plus years, so it wasn't really an option for them to get rid of that. But he figured out a very simple method using litmus paper. Uh, He could go out into the uh, fields and he could litmus test some some buds and basically ones that looked a particular way, one that attracted his attention that looked different from the low THC cultivars. He would litmus test and if it turned purple, it was very likely that the number of the the, the number percentage of THC was going to be higher than what he wanted and he would just pull those plants. And mm-hmm. he did that for 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 like over a decade, maybe a close to two decades. Wow. And what happened was he created Zolotinosha, the you know, three, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, fifteen, seventeen, all these different Zolotinoshas. And they were they are the lowest THC plants, or at least they were mm-hmm. for the longest time. There are CBG cultivars now that are very high in CBG, 12 to 15%. And if you understand the synthesization of cannabinoids and how it happens in the gland head, CBGA is, of course, the first cannabinoid to be produced. Uh, and if all the other gene synthases are turned off, then you won't get any other cannabinoids. It'll literally just stay CBG. So before that happened, Zolotinosha was the youngest, lowest, smallest THC percentage on the on the planet. And that's what we brought to Canada to approach our government with and say, hey, listen, the law is 0.3. We've got 0.03. You know, we showed them the Popular Mechanics article from the uh, from 1932, which was on the front page. The billion dollar crop, first time mm-hmm. billion and dollar had ever been used in an economic statement. Uh, and we approached our government with a with a page, uh, a deck page, the front page that said the trillion dollar crop. And <laughs> so at first he was thinking like, oh my God, you guys don't waste my time. But we managed, you know, just open the first page and check and see the popular mechanics article. And it it piqued his interest. The low THC piqued his interest. And it was a very short period after that that we ended up getting a license and and were able to start growing um, hemp. So very shortly after that, 96, a couple of years later, I would move out to British Columbia. Um, My one main friend and contact out here was Hillary Black. Hillary Black, of course, is the founder uh, of the BC Compassion Club. So she was really very inspired by Valerie Corral, Mike Corral down in California with Wham. Uh, She was inspired by Todd McCormick. Um, She had all these different inspirations in California that were kind of, you know, pushing her on one side to maybe move down to California and be a part of things there or stay in British Columbia and start her own sort of dispensary dash club. And that's kind of when I moved into BC and she was, you know, Hey, what should I do? Where should I go back down here? Should I stay up here? Uh, And I was like, well, listen, I just moved here and I'd very much like you to stay here and anything (laughs) I can facilitate and help with, I would absolutely do. So for years I helped facilitate uh, cannabis flow into the BC compassion club through donations, through, you know, finding contacts for them uh, and just really doing anything that I could for the, for the compassion club. Cause I believed in it so much. And it was one of those things that you would be willing to lose money on every single experience yeah. that you came in contact with the club. If I came in contact with the club, I just wanted to know at the end of it that they made something and I lost something because I just couldn't bring myself to lower my integrity to the point where I would profit off of terminally ill people. And uh, nor could Hillary, and so she really gave up the life of a, you know, a fairly well-to-do first-world West Vancouver, you know, girl to move to East Vancouver to start helping people who live on the streets, mental health issues, terminal diseases, and for her to give herself to the service of that uh, was very noble and inspirational. So I, I kind of followed in behind her to, to to learn as much as I could in that 
lessons of humility and to, to be as good of a person as possible. And Hillary is certainly a good person to learn those lessons from. Um, that lasted till about 1998. Um, and it, Towards the end of 98, the start of 1999, I started a company called Fresh Headies, and Fresh Headies would sell uh, now world-famous bubble bags. Back then, nobody knew about them. I coined the term bubble bags. I coined the term bubble hash, and I gave myself the silly moniker of bubble man that will follow me to my grave, I'm sure, at this point. Uh, and we started uh, you know, making these in our – my wife was sewing them in our, in our kitchen-living room, oh, wow. and I was selling them online on sites like Overgrow and Cannabis com and cannabisculture.com and cannabisworld.com and really sort of promoting this you know homemade hash experience um funny enough butane method came out like two months after the bubble bags came out which was march 1999 oh, wow. i think uh, yeah like maybe a month or two later indra released the bho method and it was kind of like here we go like these two pathways began. Now, people knew about butane prior, people knew about water extraction prior, but there's no doubt that Indra popularized BHO and that I popularized bubble hash. There's just no doubt about those two things whatsoever. So yeah, led that to, uh, you know, starting to, you know, do all this educational stuff. And it, it got me into photography because I wanted to share the photos. Yeah. And suddenly now I'm learning to be a, a professional photographer so I can share these photos in the way that they look. I've always had an extremely sensitive olfactory, which was really led me to almost becoming a cannabis sommelier before it yeah. even existed. I could understand and smell the complexities of the terpene profiles. I could understand and, and seek out the highest caliber, highest quality cannabis. And I was always known for that, even at a young age. Oh, yeah, go, go see Mark. He's got, he's got the best stuff, you know, because it was important to me to find that stuff, to find growers who felt that it was an obligation to grow great cannabis, not a right, you know, so that was uh, also another kind of part of it. And over the course of 20 plus years of doing that and taking photography and raising the bar on this on the skill level and, uh, you know, just continually going deeper down the rabbit hole and educating people on simple things like capitate stock trichomes, capitate sessile trichomes, bulbous uh, trichomes, all the terminology, anthocyanin, the purple striations yeah. of, that are an antioxidant, a lot of these things. I was one of the very first people to actually start breaking that out into the mainstream, at least into the cannabis groups and into these other groups and really promoting and educating. And I was learning it myself mm -hmm. through scientist friends that would explain to me what the photos were that I were taking. So, you know, cause at first I didn't know a lot of this terminology, but that's yeah. how I learned it by, by taking, uh, by taking the photos. And so 20 years later, I'm now a voice of authority for the subject. I do consulting uh, all over the world. I have my company in Jamaica, can uh, cannabinoid research and development. I have my fresh headies company. And then, uh, you know, most recently, well, I do a little bit of consulting for a tissue culture company called Segra international, which we can get into and talk a yeah. little bit about that. Um, and then of course, um, I'm a partner and, uh, uh, a big part of things over at Whistler Technologies, where we do commercial industrial scale water extraction equipment and make it available to those that want to play on a little bit of a bigger level. And then finally, and and and, and most importantly, um, I'm a founder at my company Embark Health. And so Embark Health is a large scale extraction facility uh, that I'm in right now at uh, Delta, British Columbia. We have another facility that we're building in Woodstock, Ontario, and we're going to be doing seven different modalities of extraction 
solventless is what I'm focused on, uh, but I have uh, brought in Mike West, the chemist uh, who did Cresco's labs and Green Lion and oh, a bunch cool. of different yeah. things down in the U.S. Um, he's up here working with us as well. So we're really excited about uh, moving things forward with uh, with Embark. Nice. Yeah, so much. Uh, it's It's fascinating to meet someone who has had such a well-rounded experience with the cannabis plant that you've kind of come in the spiral around uh, around the plant from uh, the hemp side and all of that and, and what all of that teaches you as far as genetics and chemistry, uh, the biosynthesis of cannabinoids and all of that, and then into extraction and then even into the, the uh, macro photography. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's super fascinating just to think about your experiences. And one thing that I wanted to make sure that we touch on, on, on multiple angles is um, the, the changes that you've seen over, let's say the past 25 years or so. Um, and particularly in Canada, um, because, you know, Canada recently has sort of been trying to legalize. I mean, they have a, um, they have legalized. It's a model that not everyone is super stoked about, I guess. Um, I've talked to different people. Some people are happy with it. Some people are kind of frustrated. Um, so I guess to find a starting point, let's focus on the hemp stuff and then we'll spiral out into everything else. Um, so how old were you when in 95 when you received that license? I was 21 years old. So how did that feel to like, get that license in hand and know that you were stepping into this world of like being able to work with the cannabis plant, um, legitimately, legally, professionally, and, you know, and to see that, that sort of door open. Well, it felt amazing. And I mean, it felt amazing for the most part, not because of the government and the police and all the people who said you can't do it, but because of all of our supporters and all the people who should have been our supporters and all the closest people in our lives and our friends yeah. who told us it was impossible, who told us that it would never happen, who said that it would happen when pigs flew and, and things like this, or when hell freezes over, which I would remind right. them, you know, we are living in Winnipeg and Winnipeg is colder than Mars in the winter. So <laughs> freezing hell over in Winnipeg is not really a big challenge. So <laughs> there, yeah, that's, that. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was kind of, you know, obviously it was a pretty great feeling um, and, and being able to visit the hemp fields. Um, mm -hmm. My mentor, Ron Hickey, uh, who taught me how to grow at a very young age and really took me under his wing and, and taught me how to be obsessive compulsive about cannabis and really focus on the plant and listen to the plant and learn from the plant. Um, I was able to take him to the first hemp field that we grew. And this is a man who served 11 years in yeah. prison for growing cannabis, um, you know, 11 years in prison for mm -hmm. growing cannabis. I'll repeat that. He served much more time than most murderers and rapists do yeah. in our country. Uh, even if you were to sort of uh, kidnap children and, and do heinous things to children, uh, you still probably wouldn't get 11 years in prison in Canada. So, you know, here's a man that was the most compassionate, empathetic, inspiring human being that you could possibly imagine serving time with with child killers and rapists and murderers and all of these different people and of course what did he do while he was there he made it a better place he made it an easier place he cut down on the fighting he 
he, he stood in as a sort of moderator to make sure that well, when groups were upset with other groups, he could kind of step in there and roll a little pinner and smoke a little joint and say, hey, you don't want to go stab that guy. Like, let's just work this out. So, of course, even in prison, the guy is doing the good work, but he never belonged there. And when we took him to the field and I saw tears well up in his eyes, that was when I really understood the profound nature of what we were doing here and how much it was going to affect the way people thought, regardless if they ever ate the product, wore the product, right. smoked the product. Uh, just seeing it on the side of the road was going to change the way they thought about it. So that was pretty inspirational. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such a huge step towards changing the stigma around the cannabis plant, just having it in front of people. I mean, it's something that um, you know we've been experiencing in Oregon, especially since, um, I don't know, the late late years of the medical program going into the transition into legalization, where you start to see, um, you know, sizable farms, you know, fairly frequently. And then when hemp uh, was legalized in the United States, so I mean, now you see huge hemp fields everywhere. And, you know, it, it changes the, the whole um, atmosphere around the plant and it kind of brings that tension down a little bit when people are seeing it all the time whether they have any relationship with the plant or not is still working on that stigma and kind of softening those uh responses so that people don't necessarily have such a, an intense knee-jerk reaction about it if they might otherwise um, have and when you when you got the license and you were growing hemp those first several years that it was all research and development, what was that uh, research and development focused on? Well, a variety of things. I mean, first of all, yes, you're right. Growing hemp changes the narrative. It crushes the propaganda narrative and slowly but surely disassembles it and recreates a new narrative that people have yeah. to make up because now everything that was based on lies is now like, well, that plant doesn't look super dangerous. Like there's like 50 acres of it right there. Like the, yeah. what the heck's going on here? So, I mean, a lot of things back then was, okay, we can grow hemp. Now we were, you know, we had stars in our eyes. We were, we were like, oh, there's 50,000 commercial products that you can do with hemp. Literally did we realize there's 50 billion dollars of infrastructure that's required for 50,000 commercial products of hemp so you know we thought that we were going to have like you know fiber and and cellulose and mm -hmm. seeds yeah. and like all of these different sort of things well in canada what really happened was you know you're growing these things you're testing the soil one of the things that came out of it right off the bat which was very interesting um, the first hemp field grown in Canada was grown by Joe Strobel and Jeff Keim, a tobacco farmer and a lawyer. Uh, they got their license just one year before us. We actually got our license. We applied in 94. We got it in 95. Um, they applied for their license at the start of 94. They ended up getting their license for 94, and they grew the first mm -hmm. five, only five-acre hemp field. They grew it on a, a radioactive tobacco field. Of course, if you understand tobacco wow, yeah. growing, mm -hmm. they, they spray radium-226 on tobacco. It's a radioactive nucleotide that raises the levels of nicotine naturally or unnaturally. Uh, but they, because of it, they have to test their soil. So after he grew his first experimental hemp field and he tested his soil, he, they were completely surprised and confused as to why the radioactive levels were so low. Um, it was disconcerting to them. They eventually found it inside the hemp plant. This taught us that hemp is phytoremediate for radioactive nucleotides. And a company that we were involved with at the time called Consolidated Growers and Processors started a program in Chernobyl to grow hemp and remove radioactive nucleotides out of the soil. Now, obviously, all you're doing is moving that, that radiation, right. and it's going to end up in the plant. 
and we were looking at a couple of different technologies. There was a Rus Russian scientist who was using electron cluster technology to basically, you know, just take radiation apart piece by piece, neutralizing it. Uh, the other option was a little more archaic. It was burning the material yeah. and glassifying the ash. Not yeah. super ideal to be having landmines of radioactive material and waste all around the planet. But that was a project that happened really within the first year of hemp growing in, in Canada because of that accidental discovery. Yeah. Um, so pretty, pretty interesting, you know, from that standpoint, people have learned now since that it's very common knowledge that hemp is a phytoremediative plant, but prior to that, nobody knew that hemp was a phytoremediative plant, at least in the circles that I was flowing in. You weren't reading about it in books. You weren't talking to people about it. It was really a unique Canadian innovation that brought forth that, um, eventually what happened though, with all the R and D, you know, we understood that if we were going to try and grow fiber, there was a massive, in, uh, you know, massive amounts of money that would be need, needed for infrastructure, uh, that hemp was unique. It was a very strong fiber that you wouldn't just be able to ru run it through a cotton ginny and run it through yeah. uh, all the machines that cotton uses. It's just not like that. Uh, and in fact, it messes up machines left, right and center because the fiber is so strong. Same thing with the cellulose. The cellulose we thought was miraculous because of the lignin concentration being so low, um, lignin being quite high in trees, upwards of 70 plus percentage, which is why you re uh, require chlorine to reduce the lignin down and to separate from your herds to be able to make paper and pulp products like that. With hemp, the lignin concentration was so low, the percentage of of fiber was in the 70 percentages, fiber and cellulose. Wow. So you, yeah. didn't, you didn't really have to go into that chlorine um, delignifier and so you know that was another thing that was learned and really we were kind of pushed into this grain you know you're in you're in canada you're in the prairies everyone's growing grain for cargill there's all different types of grain that are be growing and that's really where hemp took off in the essential amino acid complexities that the seed oil produces that embryo and so you in a very short period of time after 1998 a gentleman by the name of paul bobby who's one of canada's largest seed um, dehullers and seed crushers i think he processed over 25 million pounds of seed last year to give you an idea of the wow. size of his operation <laughs> and he started yeah. in 1998 the minute commercial viability came down so he was one of the guys that was pressing the oil you know, creating protein powder isolates, creating oil, creating dehulled seeds. He created this dehuller and he set it up in a really unique way that allowed him to do some pretty big numbers, which a lot of people hadn't figured out. And so it really kind of the whole business fell into this sort of the health aspect of hemp. You know, the all of the essential amino acids that your body needs but can't produce are produced in hemp seed oil. That's nine that adults require, plus the three that children require for bone and organ development. And uh, we really sort of fell into this niche of like, okay, we can make money with seed. And that's really where the Canadian hemp um, marketplace stood for the last 20 plus years. There hasn't been a lot of companies making money off of fiber or making money off of paper products or pulp products or, or anything like that. Everything has pretty been pretty much been exclusively the hemp seed, the hemp seed oil and the hemp seed protein powder isolate. Yeah. And is the reason that um, it's been so challenging for farmers to get into the, you know, fiber markets and that sort of thing. Is it, is it just the infrastructure costs alone or is there also a, um, a market, element as well um that's kind of driving that 
I think they're both being driven by that for sure. But at the same time, you have to understand that when you figure out a way to make money with a crop, and now people are able to make money, they can grow grain and get paid a certain amount per acre, and it's still pretty, pretty, pretty nice, pretty tasty prices compared to growing other grains. Um, you understand that, you know, unfortunately for hemp, it's not like you can plant one plant and get the best buds, get the highest quality seed, get the nicest fiber, get the most percentage of cellulose. These are all very specific things. With hemp, you can get the one from the whole in the highest number. You might get a little extra on the side, but hemp doesn't really seem to work like that. It's not like yeah. you plant a plant and you're like, oh, we're going to use the fiber for this. We're going to use the side. Right. It's like the fibers crap when you grow for bud or for mm -hmm. seed. And when you, you know, it's how you plant it. And it's the cultivars that you plant. And it's the gene synthesis that are present in the plant to allow it to express itself. And all of these different things, including the terroir and the Appalachia yep. that the plant is growing under, is going to decide how it grows. And unfortunately, a perfect example is the Canadian CBD market. All of these Canadian farmers think that they're going to continue to grow grain, I'm not understanding that when you, uh, you know, fertilize a female plant, when it when it gets, uh, you know, when a male and a female get together <laughs> in the hemp field, basically the the plant really stops producing cannabinoids and it starts putting its energy into the embryo production of that plant now. So seed production takes on an enormous amount of energy from a plant. So these guys end up getting a nice grain harvest and then they're like, well, we've got this chafe and it's one and a half percent CBD, but we have like 65,000 hectares of it. And it's like, well, <laughs> okay. The problem is from an extraction standpoint that there is no economic viability to be had at 1.5% cannabinoids. In fact, anything really under 8% is hard to pay for because, you know, buddy's running 1.5 and then you bring in a 15%. Yeah. Well, now you're getting literally like seven to 15 times the yield that you would have from the, from the other stuff. And it's like, that's pretty important from an economic standpoint, from an extractor standpoint that we don't want to waste all our time processing something that's got such low yields. Now, if there was nothing else available, I would get it. But, you know, and I've had conversations with Canadian farmers, they just they want to get their seed and their grain crop in and they want to also make money on CBD. And they're just disconnected from the reality that if you want to grow CBD, you do it the way they are in America, which is you plant all female plants and you grow big plants and you get, you know, 10 to 18 percent CBD cultivars. That's how you grow CBD. You don't you don't do it with a, a 1.5 percent chafe that you're taking off of your off of your seed. And then there's all you know. Obviously, if there's seed involved, depending on your process of extraction, you're going to be extracting all those different plant fats and and, and out of yeah, the seed. Yep. The essential amino acids yep. are going to be mixed in with your oil. And that's not really ideal either, particularly for inhalation and other uh, methods of of, uh, of of consumption. Right, and you, you run into shelf stability issues and stuff too. Some of those um, fatty acids and oils can go rancid faster than others. Of course. And yeah, and so it's yeah, it's a tricky thing. And, and we've seen similar things here in the United States too that you know, once hemp was legalized in, in 2018, everyone wanted to figure out how to do everything with the cannabis plant. How do I get my, my resin crop for CBD? Because that's every, what everyone here is focused on. Um, and now CBG. Um, but then also, how do I turn my stalks into this or that or the other? And and that's through talking to people with a lot of experience um, with hemp, that's um, something I've learned that I hadn't had a lot of direct experience in is that, yeah, these, these stalks are very different when they're grown for, uh, when the plants are grown for resin production. And it's just not as simple as 
uh, trying to clip all the buds off, yank the stalks out and send those to a processor and then, you know, get paid for all of these different things. Um, yeah, that was the utopian version that everyone thought was going to, you know, we, we thought the same thing. We we're like, it's going to be amazing. Right. We'll yeah, connect, why not? We'll just put tons and have this truck come in and pick up the stocks and have this truck come in and pick up the buds and filter out the seeds and do this and that. But it's just, it's, you know, it's the one from the whole when it comes to mm -hmm. cannabis. I feel the same way about the resin. If you want to use cannabis as a medicine, if you want to shrink tumors and reduce mm -hmm. uh, tremors, and you want to increase appetite and, and stimulate sleep and, and you know all of these different things, this comes from the medicine that is uh, created and produced inside the glandular trichome. It's not produced anywhere else on the plant. And this took a long time to explain to people, oh, but it's in the th roots and it's, uh, it goes in the, into the leaf. And it's like, no, no, it really doesn't. It's, uh, it's all right there in the glandular trichome heads. Those are the labs, the bulbous, the sessile, and the capitate stalks. And once you learn that, you can start looking at the plant a lot differently. We don't need the plant. From a regenerative, sustainable um, organic farming perspective what a beautiful thing to be able to grow medicine grow it by the yep. field take that medicine isolate and extract the glandular trichomes and then take that material and put it all back into the field the very things yeah. that you've taken out of the soil mm -hmm. you can now feed back into because 90 percent 80 percent of that plant uh, is actually just biomass that is yeah. cellulose and uh, fiber yeah, and, and this is actually transitioning into um, sort of the next phase here. So when you started to wrap your mind around, um, you know, high resin cannabis production and understanding the medicinal value and you're starting to understand cannabinoids and terpenes, is that where the motivation came from to start to find better ways of sifting these trichome heads out of the material? Is that what sort of started to lead towards um, making the bubble bags and, and running down that road? I mean, yes and no. What really led to that was 1995, I went to Amsterdam for the Cannabis Cup. Mm -hmm. It was my first Cannabis Cup. I had a booth there with my hemp partners and we were selling hemp materials and we had Jack Hare right next to us on one side and Eagle nice. Bill vaporizing on the other side. It wow. was great. Yeah. It was amazing. Jack was a huge inspiration, and in fact, he was the main reason we got into hemp because of his book. It gave us everything we needed to go to our minister uh, of finance and agriculture and approach them for a license to grow hemp. Um, what really inspired it was being in Amsterdam, and this is a ridiculously hilarious silly story, but I was, I was uh, behind the greenhouse uh, on the Damrak, and there's a Thai food restaurant that used to be there. It was run... It was all Katoys who were waitresses. So it was all lady boys. It was all like mm -hmm. before they had transgenders, they just called them right. toys in Thailand, uh, lady boys. And so we were at this restaurant and, you know, it's very small and really spectacular food. And I bumped into Rob Clark. Uh, and wow, Rob Clark yeah. had a yeah Rob Clark had a bong and he was a, a Ruhr bong and he was standing on the stairs of this of this uh, restaurant. And I was like, oh, what's, you know, what's, what's going down? And he said, well, you know what? You know what they say? If it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And then he lit this bong and I watched the hash inside of it that was powder just turn to an oil and like drip through the screen and like drip down the bong. And I was just like, I had no idea that that was like, that was the infamous skunk man, Sam Sift. And Rob and Dave were like best friends. And, you know, skunk man, Sam doesn't 
he wasn't going out at the time. So it was like you could bump into Rob, but you certainly weren't going to bump into Sam. Yeah. Um, I ended up becoming good friends with Rob and Sam, for that matter, over the years. Both became good friends. And Rob actually ended up coming to my house later that year. Hillary Black from the Compassion Club brought him by. So I ended up having him by my house and getting to kind of get into deeper conversations. But seeing that hash melt into a liquid that was made solventlessly, like dry sift, I just okay. couldn't wrap my head around it. And I never stopped. I started getting into sifting. And I was like, I can't make anything like that. That's when I started learning about carding. And I started teaching mm -hmm. people that you could card the material. And around 97, 98, I started hearing a little bit here and there about water hash. I finally saw uh, the isolator bags probably really less than six months before I came out with my own bags. I saw some isolator bags. It was a two-bag system, which when I look back now, that is so archaic. I'm very lucky that I was able to make something because we ran some material through these bags a couple of times and it just came out terrible. It just looked poor and wet and nasty and it wasn't inspirational. But a friend of mine at the time, Breeder Steve, had some shishka berry that he had just grown from the yellow line. So there was two lines of shishka berry. There was the red line and the yellow line. And the, that was in regards to the afghan that was being used to, okay. to, for the cross. Uh, and the yellow was my favorite. And he had some material. He said, here, run this through those bags. And I produced something that was really quite nice. Uh, even with just two bags, I saw it bubble and melt, and I was like, okay, I'm on the right track. We're isolating glands. Uh, I ended up going to Amsterdam to try and sell those bags because I certainly didn't think in my own mind I would ever make my own. That's not how I go. Uh, but I didn't have a good sort of experience in Amsterdam asking for that and trying to get that, and uh, I left kind of quite dismayed and quite bummed out that my, my sort of dream of selling water hash bags in Canada was coming to an end, and I ended up coming home, and my wife just said, hey, why don't we make our own? And I was just like, we could do that, and that's really how bubble bag. That's really how bubble bags were born. But it all really started from that first, that first bowl at the Thai food restaurant in Amsterdam. Wow. With the uh, if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And in fact, you know, years later in 1999, when I started the company and I created, you know, bubble hash and bubble bags and and bubble man. Um, if you look back, my motto was, if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And it still is. And so Skunkman Sam emailed me about that like month, maybe a month after I released the started the company. And he was like, I saw the name. It was like Skunkman Sam in his email. And he was like, hey, where did you hear if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And do you know who first said that? And I wrote him back and I said, listen, I absolutely know. The first time I heard it was through Rob. Uh, I honored that you would email me listen if you want me to stop using it no problem if you want me to give you credit no problem whatever you like you let me know and that's that's really how I, I I kicked it off with Sam he right away wrote me back it's exactly what he wanted to hear he didn't want to you know like me to be like oh screw you it's mine I can do what right. I want type of thing but that's the <laughs> cannabis community for you you reach out to people yeah. and often that's you'll get that uh, sometimes and I wrote him back the way he wanted, and he, we just became friends and sort of hit it off from there. And he really became a mentor to me, you know, down down the road. And obviously, he's been a huge inspiration in my life for the last twenty plus years. Uh, and it's just been great being uh, being good friends with both of them. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a that's such a cool story. Um, and how did your um, macro photography come about? Was that intertwined in some way with your, um, you know, diving really deep into into understanding 
um, what was influencing GoodHash and the size of these trichomes, what the trichomes look like and all that, or was it kind of a separate thing altogether? No, no, it was definitely influenced by all of that. Um, first trichome shots I ever saw were in 1995 in Amsterdam by Joop Dumas, a Dutch a photographer who had, uh, I don't know how he gained access to this, but he had access to the electron scan microscope from oh, the cool. university. Yeah. He was taking pictures of like single trichomes and printing them like full size. He had postcards all over the smart shops and head shops of the city. I ended up meeting him that year. He had a booth as well. And uh, yeah, I was just really inspired by his photography. I knew it wasn't going to be realistic for me to get an electron scan microscope. So I just kept my <laughs> I kept my eyes on it for, for the next few years, uh, 95. In fact, I wouldn't take my first macro shot till 2008 to give you an idea how early on this oh, wow. guy was ahead of, his, ahead of his time. So, you know, maybe around 2006 or seven, Jason King started taking the odd macro shot mm -hmm. um, for the Canna Bible. I kind of approached him and was like, hey, like – can you show me how to do some macro photography? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. You know, as soon as you show me how to manufacture and, and sell bubble bags all over the world, I'll show you how to macro <laughs> photograph. And I was like, oh, oh wow, we're going to play that card. Okay. Like, oh, which is funny because I told, I told him then, I said, look, man, you have a choice right now to be the guy that turned me on to macro photography or you get to be the guy where I get to tell this story every time. And it's, it, I've told this story probably a dozen times, and it's the truth. It just is the truth. He was super insecure. He was worried that I was going to come and take – what he saw sure, as yeah. his, and uh, I mean, let's be honest, my macro photography blew him out of the water. He never moved forward. Now, there's been macro photographers that have blown me out of the water, thank God, and I could name sure, quite yeah. a few in Eric Nugshots and Shale and mm -hmm. Dynasty Genetics. There's some incredible macro photographers. I would be remiss without really truly mentioning the people that supported me in macro photography around that 2007, 2008. They were members from Overgrow. One of them was named Monkey. He would take photographs of praying mantises that he would grow from eggs that he ordered over the internet, oh, wow. as well yeah. as some cannabis shots. Uh, perhaps your giddy aunt was another character from London, England, who was taking, he took the first clear dome shot up perfect bubble on top of a stainless steel screen back around 2007 as well and they were inspirational to me i contacted them both they were like oh you want to get the mpe you want to get the 24 uh mtex uh, uh dual flash from canon you want to get uh, this body you want to set your iso at 100 you want to set so just giving me everything and because they were so incredible they get to be the part of the story where they got to inspire and really help create the the bubble man aspect of macro photography like i couldn't have done it without them they were so kind and so generous uh and i just always feel like giving them a shout out when i talk about my macro photography it's why i've always been generous in the same way when people ask me the what tripod or head or whatever mm -hmm. it is i'm using i don't keep anything a secret it's just such a fear and scarcity mentality you know i'd rather go for the uh, love and abundance does it hurt sometimes when i look at some of these macro photographers who have just blown my work right out of the water sure a little bit but it feels a lot better on the on the flip side of things to just see how far they're taking it you know shale with his template showing the size of the trichomes eric nugs with the videos yeah. that go into the plants and spinning it's all just so spectacular and uh, uh, my hats off to all of those guys for pushing it to, you know, much further than I than I managed to. We all just got to accept our places in the ladder. Absolutely. You know, you yeah. might you might get to be two or three rungs in the ladder, but you're never going to be the whole ladder. So just we all stand on the shoulders of giants. 
uh, and we should we should acknowledge those giants uh, as often as we can. Yeah, that's that's a really great perspective and something I think that a lot of people listening that are maybe getting involved in the cannabis industry right now should really um, take stock of because it's easy, uh, depending on what, you know, here in the United States, from my perspective, think about, you know, depending on what state you're in and what the regulatory structures are and everything and how you're trying to get into the business or even looking at the hemp space and all of these competing um, CBD companies and everything, it's very easy to fall into that mentality that, you know, I've got my lane, my space, I own this, this is my, you know, baby that I'm nursing. And, you know, you kind of uh, try to, to keep everybody else away to, to protect your territory. But you're right, we all are playing a part in a bigger narrative, a bigger story that goes way beyond us. And if we can appreciate our place in that and appreciate that there's a lot of fulfillment to be derived in helping others go further than we have. I mean, that's something that I really like as an educator. You know, I get the opportunity to teach people that are learning to study the science of cannabis and that are going to be the next generation cannabis scientists. And, um, you know, they're going to do things that I could never have imagined being able to do, especially at their age and the tools and resources they're going to have available. They're going to go so much further than I'll be able to in my career. Um, but that's awesome to be a part of that. You're helping to breathe life into, into this, this, you know, this fractal system that is taking off far beyond, you know, where you can see where it's going to go. Um, that's it. That's it. When you tap into love and abundance, you realize that Jah did indeed make enough for everyone. Yeah. When you when you tapped into fear and scarcity, it's like, man, there's only one piece of pie left, and uh, I'm gonna have to take that piece. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And and this the photography world now it's so mind blowing to see how how far it's come now that Instagram is here, and now that um, people don't have to be afraid to share their work. You know, um, when I was growing up and when you were growing up and, you know, prohibition was such a serious thing. I mean, you're talking about you kind of came from a more conservative area. My home state is actually Mississippi, one of the most conservative prohibitionist heavy places in the United States, unless you have cannabis in your house. A lot of people don't know that it was decriminalized in the 70s. Uh, you can have an ounce in your house, but they bust you on the road. That's where they get you. Um, <laughs> but um you know, now we're in this world where people are comfortable sharing their closet grows and their hobby photography, trying to, you know, uh, grapple with these things. And they can have conversations with all sorts of big players in the field on social media and share. And um, it's it's just been wild to see that evolution. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, given that you're in Canada, what is your general feeling about how legalization is unfolding in Canada, given, especially given, particularly uh, in British Columbia, British Columbia's history of dispensaries that have been operating for so long. I mean, as long as I can remember, there have been shops in one form or another that have been trying to serve that need of getting cannabis to patients and stuff. Um, but how has that kind of all evolved and changed um, with legalization that's come through? 
Well, it depends on the side that you sit, you know, like obviously yeah. look, if it's a free for all and you can do whatever you want without ever having anyone over check your work, look over your shoulder, that's the easiest thing ever. So obviously people loved being able to grow their herb. Oh, there's a little mold on there. Don't worry about it. Oh, we got bugs. It's fine. Like just trim it up. We'll sell it to the clubs. You know, all of that, like lack of regulation. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, part of the regulations in cannabis bother me, but part of the regulations in cannabis I'm quite happy with. And I hope that some of the cannabis regulations spill over into our water, food, and air industries because those things are currently yeah. toxic poisons. And so, you know, there's things in the industry where you shake your head and it's like, listen, it's like it's been a free-for-all for all these years, and now we're just trying to enter into this system that literally everything else is in. Everything yeah. else. So you get these people who have never been a part of these systems and they're like, well, this is just ridiculous. Like, why does why do we have to have HR and why do we have, have to have health and safety and why do we have to test everything so much? And this is just absurd and ridiculous. It's all built to crush the business. And it, it, you can feel that way on one part, but it's like actually all of that is in place to protect people. It's not to, you know, to try and stifle business. It's actually to protect people, to be able to monitor things, to be able to do recalls. Like, have you ever heard of a recall in the cannabis industry? industry before it was legal like right. oh i guess all of that stuff that was grown with avid and, and eagle 20 and all of these poisons yeah. just got smoked like nobody threw that shit away it was smoked by people and that is kind of shitty you know like we yeah. should have regulations in place that say you know, like it's funny because a licensed production facility will get a recall and then all the old activists that are very much, listen, we're humans. We can't help but be divided. And the easiest way to conquer us is, of course, to divide us. So that's always going to be an important play as well. But the activists that feel that this has been a false legalization and that it's really not real, they're, mm -hmm. they'll see a, a recall happen and they'll say, see, these guys don't even know how to grow. They're growing shit. It's like, well, most people grow mm -hmm. shit. They just do it in a regulated system where if you grow shit, you get called out on it. Whereas when you're in a black market situation yep. and you know that you grew that crop to pay for your your mortgage, rent, whatever, you think it's going in the garbage? Like I'll tell you, I knew conscious Rasta growers in Jamaica that would still go and be like, oh, like the crop's going to die. Like let's just get some of that fungicide. Well, that fungicide's illegal in most countries. They sent it to Jamaica because there's no rules or regulations there. Every time I went to a field in Jamaica, I would walk around the outer area of the field and I would look for these bottles of fungicide mm. that they would that they would use. And I, I would catch them left, right, and center and just be like, listen, I'm not making hash out of your field. I'm not smoking any of your of your product. This is poison so there's a real like can you imagine how many people would pay income tax if we weren't forced to do it that's exactly right. how many right. people would throw away their herb if they weren't forced to do it and that yeah. says a lot about this industry that's all about the patients yes yes yep that's what runs through my mind um quite a lot is that some of the same people that were chanting you know it's for the patients it's for the patients um some of them were some of the first ones to totally change their attitude. They almost never talk about patients anymore. And it's basically like, what's the hustle now? You know, now that they've buttoned up this regulation, what can we, what can we hustle and get around um, to capitalize on, you know, before the next loophole is closed? And it's been very disheartening in some senses to see, but you also expect it, right? I mean, because 
when you deal with a market and lots of people, you know that there are going to be those people that will get away with whatever they can get away with for as long as they can get away with it, because that's just how they operate. Um, and then you have other people that, um, you know, view things differently and and really care about the quality of what reaches the consumer. And it's not just about making money, but it's it's, you know, really putting that intention in. And I think one thing that's interesting is legalization in some ways kind of raises the veil um, in some sense um, on some of those actors um, to kind of see like, yeah. well, who's, who's actually really trying to produce high quality, clean product that's going to actually be medicine for people. You know, if that's, if that's the, the type of product they're making versus just trying to make money. Yeah, no, for sure. You, you, people have to understand this plant is extremely powerful, okay? In the 14th century, the Sufis were gathered in the square in Cairo, and they would put their fingers down their throats, the soldiers, and if they threw up green, they were considered hashish eaters, and they had their teeth wrenched out with pliers. They did yeah. not stop consuming cannabis. Throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the DEA shot and murdered people, killed dogs, stole children from their families, locked up parents for decades on end, and people did not stop growing cannabis. So if they think what we have to deal with now is harder than all the <laughs> things that we've come through, and this has got, right. been going on a lot longer than the 20, 30, 40, or 50 years that any of us have been involved in this. And it's funny, to very rarely do you hear people mention that the history of cannabis is very, very long. It's hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Right. And uh, it go, it's a lot, lot, the prohibition of that plant has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the mm -hmm. fact that we've now gotten to a point where all we really have to do is deal with regulators and different people, I would say we've got this. I would say that we are strengthened and hardened by the um, adversities that the cannabis prohibitionists put us through over the years, doing all of these different things, taking our kids, shooting mm -hmm. our dog, taking our home, destroying our lives and still not putting a dent in our, uh, our, our dedication to cannabis and to making cannabis available to people. 20, 25 years ago, we certainly had no idea that cannabis could shrink tumors through apoptosis. We had no idea that it could stop seizures in its tracks. We, you know, a lot of these things, most people were like, well, if you're doing chemo, it'll help you not vomit. And that's like, will increase the quality of your life. It's like, actually, it will increase the timeline of your life if you allow it to. And when you bring that kind of concept into play, you think that there could potentially be crimes against humanity uh, wavered against some of these prohibitionists who made this um, who made this a reality for so many people. How many people's loved ones passed away earlier than yeah. they needed to? How many people lived a quality of life that was so much lower than the quality of life that would be available? I mean, just look at Alzheimer's. Those people are sitting in rooms drooling. They have no knowledge of even where they are. They start giving them cannabinoids. The next thing you know, they're telling stories about the 40s and the 50s. They're dancing to their favorite record. These are realities that are happening today. Yeah. And so I feel very blessed to be a part of cannabis in this timeline. I can tell you 25 years ago when I had friends getting popped left, right, and center and being given dimes, you know, 10-year sentences, like the judge was giving away uh, CDs like Oprah Winfrey, and you get 10 years, and you get yeah. 10 years, and you get 10 years. It was sickening. 
It was beyond sickening. It was very difficult for me to sell bubble bags, knowing that potentially one of my customers could be caught manufacturing and be given a 10 to 20 year sentence. Now, bubble bags were so new for the longest time that the police never really figured them out. I'll never forget one guy saying that he got caught with a grow and they arrested him and they took him in and he spent the weekend and he was in the middle of doing a bubble batch. Well, when he came home, his entire place was smashed out and everything was taken except his bucket was sitting in the corner with his water. And he said, yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an ideal situation as it had sat there for a couple of days, but uh, yeah, I basically pulled those bags and got like close (laughs) to an ounce of bubble. And he was like, that got me through like my next year and a half, like through my court and through all this different stuff that he, that he had to deal with. And I thought, now that's the kind of story that I like to hear. Yeah. Wow. That is fascinating. That's crazy. Oh, and something I want to make sure to ask you, because I always have to check myself and remember that some people listening um, aren't as familiar um, with some of the terminology and things that we're using. Can you describe to, let's say, an audience that is totally unfamiliar with bubble hash at all? Can you just describe in really simple terms what bubble hash is and what that process looks like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So anyone that's ever seen a cannabis plant, you've seen that it's got this frost on it. Some some people like to call it the crystals. Some people call it the THC, even though that's not really accurate. What it actually is, is called glandular uh, trichomes. And if you go to bubblemanbrand.com and you look up under photography, I have some beautiful uh, uh, macro photographs from seed right till the end of like finished product and all the different microns and dry sifts and all these different things. So these little crystals are little mushroom-like creatures. They have a stalk and they have a, a little head on the end of them. Inside that head is where the magic happens with cannabinoids and terpenes. And so bubble hash is really just those heads broken off. And I'll give you a little explanation. So Inside that head, we have things called organelles, two of them on either side. You have a plastid and a vacuole. Plastids produce phenols, which are alcohols, and the vacuoles produce hydrocarbons, which are terpenes. So these hydrocarbons and phenols push up into the upper membrane of this little globe, and they basically start synthesizing CBGA with the help of UVB and and probably some other things that we're not even aware of at this point in time. So all of the compounds, all of the cannabinoids, which is THCA, CBDA, CBGA, there's a lot of them. You can look them up as well as the entire terpene profile. And there's upwards of 180 of those from humulene to terpenoline to alpha-pinene to myrcene and beta-caryophylline, which is the one that drug dogs were always tested in because it's often a dominant terpene, very peppery uh, and very, very noticeable to, to a dog's nose. So those little heads are where the magic occurs, where the medicine is produced. So that wax membrane holds it all in place. Bubble hash is basically, and you can do this at home, you could take a little bud, you could put it in a glass of water with an ice cube or two, you can kind of shake it up, you know, break that bud up, shake it all up, and what will happen is the little resin glands will become very brittle in the cold, that wax makes them very brittle, it'll break off right at the neck where the head sits at, which is the most easily broken area, it'll break off, and due to the density of the trichome head and the the fact that it's oil-filled, it's still affected by gravity and water. And that's really the magic of bubble hash. So those little glandular trichome heads sink in the water while everything else stays afloat. And then we just pull micron screen bags accordingly, 
first one pulls out all the flour, the second one pulls out, you know, some contaminant, and then you start getting these different gland heads at different micron diameters. So that's really what bubble hash is. It's the medicinal components that are, you know, produced by the plant in these glandular trichomes. And cannabis is by no means the only plant that produces glandular trichomes. There are hundreds of plants that secrete essential oils out of um, glandular trichomes. So mint is one, herba mate, uh, lavender has trichomes, chamomile. There's a whole variety of plants that produce these. Tomatoes have trichomes on them as well. Not all trichomes are producing essential oils. Some are more like protective mechanisms. They might be really sticky or they might be acrid or they might be, you know, a a variety of things. But there are a lot of plants that you can find if you get your little macro camera out there that you can start seeing these little uh, trichomes uh, growing all over the plants. So that's what bubble hash is, the head of the trichome, isolated to a 99.9% ratio. That's why I called it bubble hash, because hash from a third world like Morocco or Afghanistan is really, like, I would doubt that it's even 10 or 20% glandular trichome heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, well, and that's one thing I was getting to is um, sort of the question of why would you do bubble hash over you know, dry sift, um, just making keef and pushing it together and everything. And um, generally my response is, as particularly when you're doing a micron gradient, um, is that purity element that you can can really dial in your purity in a good way um, and getting things cold, like you pointed out, getting the, the trichomes brittle and everything, it aids in that process. Um, so it makes all... it easy for Joe Blow to do yeah. it because producing full melt 99.9% dry sift. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been some tricks and tips that were given out. And you'll notice that all these people that are making this really nice dry sift, were not making it before those tips and tricks. They like to hold their tech close to their chest. But the bottom yeah. line is the history is there. They were not producing this until key people gave away key tips and tricks, static tech being a huge one. You know, without static tech, there'd be very few of these people producing full melt, 99.9% dry sift. Some of them have gotten a little full of themselves. They think they're a little bit more than they really are. And that's okay. Sometimes that happens. But the bottom line is you got to stay humble and uh, just, you know, pass on these little tricks and tips. Mies, I would shout out Mies. Mies is the first one to really take my carding technique, which was really just carding glandular trichomes back and forth and he took a dvd case wrapped it in a parchment paper and did the Mm. same process and and magically on one side glands would stick and on the other side glands would uh contaminant would 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 be there now it's not the be all end all it's a very slow process i think the jungle boys and some other guys are using paint rollers that they wrap in parchment to kind of create that as well it's definitely not a way to produce kilos and kilos and kilos but it is a great way to get people who never had access to the game mm-hmm. before into the game as a player and and what does that look like if someone wanted to scale up bubble hash making because it's something that um most of what i've seen around um at least here in oregon california and everything is most people uh doing solvent extraction and a lot of the solvent lists um there's there's been a lot of attention on rosin lately um, but I haven't heard much about scaled up bubble hash making. So um, how, what is, how does that translate? 
when you try to scale it up? Oh, it translates, it, tr it translates fairly well. Our team over at Whistler Technologies has done an exceptional job at uh, scaling. Uh, shout out to the two Daves and Kelvin Wong, the engineers for, for Whistler, as well as uh, Daniel Lantello, the founder and uh, my business partner. He, they've done a really good job in producing. Now, listen, innovation-wise, they focused on the impeller, making sure that the impeller's angles and the distance and the speed and the ratios were all there. Baffles inside the unit. I use a Whistler 300 unit. It's absolutely a workhorse. It's a really good unit. Um, I can put you know five to eight kilos into this thing dry. Uh, higher amounts, obviously, of fresh frozen. I like to go a little lower, like five to six kilos. I'm quite comfortable. Once I get into the seven to eight range, I get a little bit more nervous that I'm yeah. going to affect my purity and that I'm going to affect my yield. So I pay very close attention to my yields. I want to get as close to the COA for cannabinoid content as possible. So if it says it's a 23% cannabinoids, I want 20 to 21 to 22% returns. Now there's still wax and there's still terpenes, but as long as I can get that return of cannabinoids from the COA, I feel like I'm being quite efficient in the 90 plus percent range of what I'm getting off. And uh, we also produce 1,000 liter reactors as well as 2,000 liter reactors, which you can imagine if you're putting five to eight kilos dry into a 300, you can imagine how much goes into a 1,000 and into a 2,000 liter reactor. So we've got uh, a few of these machines deployed around uh, North America right now, and we've got a really nice uh, 2,000 liter times two unit that's being designed and prepped by our engineers right now. So it's uh, the game is 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 on. You know, like we are yeah. definitely scaling up water extraction. I've now seen in the last year maybe three or four more companies that I that were not. You know, we were alone in the space for years, and now there's like. Delta Separations has a machine. Yeah. Iced Extracts has a machine. Um, God, I'm thinking there's there's at least three or four of them that I've seen. A couple of different people that are just creating and designing their own machines, and uh, it's great. It's going to be helpful. This is not a game for you know the the, the small person. The problem with doing large-scale uh, extraction of cannabis is you need a lot of cannabis. And the only way to do the R&D on that is to have access to a lot of cannabis and be willing to potentially make mistakes and lose resin while you're doing your process. So that's why you don't see everyone doing it. It's you got to have the cultivars, you got to have the um the access and uh, you also have to here in canada have the permits and licensing to be able to yeah. do it as well so all of these things line up um and they have lined up for whistler technologies quite wonderfully it's a team that i'm very excited to work with and uh yeah check us out at whistlertechnologies.ca if you want to check out a large larger scale stainless steel super high-end quality uh production it's it's really a joy to work with the equipment very cool. And what what is it that um, would attract an extractor to go the bubble hash route over other extraction routes? Well, I mean, it's really one of the quickest and easiest ways to isolate trichome gland heads into a 99.9% .9 purity uh, without yeah. using a solvent, without melting it down. Um, it's the only way to isolate and separate the glands by micron diameter, which we've seen over the years also isolates and separates 
the medicinal components of the plant. I've seen, you know, appetite from 45, sleep from 90, pain yeah. relief from 120. It's not always the same from one cultivar. So now you can take a cultivar, you can isolate them by their micron diameters. You can start taking those micron diameters and, and, and formulating and mixing them from different cultivars. You know, so that's kind yeah. of the future that I see in cannabis where we can we can start, you know, there's a lot of mechanisms that are going on in the brain that are complex when we mm -hmm. consume these these compounds. And it's great to consume a single plant uh, and a single plant resin and what people call full spectrum. I would go a little further and say real full spectrum is like eight or nine or ten different cultivars that you've <laughs> that you've extracted together and now you have because let's be honest if you want a cultivar with a, a certain cannabinoid like thcv well you're going to need it you're going to need a specific cultivar for that you're not going to find it in a bunch of the cbd cultivars that are in the u.s right now those are generally yeah. south african genetics that produce a cannabinoid like that and there's a and i'm sure it's the same for cbg and cbc and cbt and all of these different cannabinoids so having access to a multitude of cultivars to be able to mix and match and formulate is something I'm uh, pretty, pretty excited about. I'm glad you brought up the full spectrum thing, because that was something I really wanted to ask your opinion on before we, we close up here, uh, because it seems, it seems like full spectrum, broad spectrum, whole plant, these are all terms that it seems like every company defines differently. Um, which makes it extremely confusing for consumers. Um, and the marketing message that floats around is that, oh, you want full spectrum. And then all these companies define what full spectrum is and then try to drive, you know, consumers towards that. So, I mean, you're already, you know, alluded to how you conceptualize sort of a, a sort of a purist perspective of what full spectrum is, but, uh, can you elaborate a little more on um, your perspective on on these different terms and how you've seen them played out? Because they've really, I mean, from I've been around in the industry for only about like 15 years or so, and I've really noticed these terms get uh, really popular over the last five years, seven years or so, um, where they're like really, you know, everyone's really talking about it and blended it into their branding. So what's what's your perspective on that well it's it's pure marketing and it's come from our conversations on hash church there's absolutely no doubt you called the timeline to the perfection you know keep in mind it was skunkman sam who was the one who discovered the modality the, the modulation effects of terpenes he did it in 2000 he hit up Ed Rosenthal, who wrote the article on Mercine, he hit up Ethan Russo, who created the ensemble yeah. effect. Um, he hit me up. Um, I, it was the first time I had ever smoked pure THCA and then pure THCA with a single terpene. It was a world of difference. So he opened our eyes up to this modulation. The rest of the world didn't get to become a part of that conversation until I invited him into Hash Church in 2014. That's when we started talking about terpenes. That's when Horatio started making terpenes and Tony started making terpenes and Kay from Tricom Technology was doing terpenes and Sam was opening up this whole conversation. And of course, you know, what people do is they listen and then they become experts the next day and they're like, well, <laughs> you know, terpenes are very important. It has to be full spectrum. It's like, well, that's just not true. And I, my perfect example is like, listen, 
the plant is producing a variety of things for us and whatever works is what we should be able to do for ourselves. We should not try to pigeonhole anyone into, con oh, it's all about full spectrum. It's the, I listen to hash church and it, terpenes modulate the effects. You can't not have all the terpenes there. And it's like, I've talked to people about the validity of having monomolecular isolates versus yeah. full spectrums. One of the most valuable aspects that I always bring to the table in the sense of the conversation is that let's say, you know, okay, full spectrum, you're all about your full spectrum. You're giving full spectrum to some a child with Dravet syndrome, it works for the first six months, no problem. But something happens in the grow room at one point in time, there's variables that occur, pressures are, are lost, heat and temperatures are lost, things, things change, maybe something happened in the water, the expression changes. And now that medicine no longer works for that patient. So yeah. the value that I see monomolecular isolates and terpene extractions and formulations are, I never want full spectrum to go away. But I yeah. also will always fight for monomolecular isolates because what if there are companies that can come in in the future, test a, a full spectrum cultivar that's you know being used for neurologically sensitive folks like Dravet syndrome and, and whatnot. And what say we take that cultivar, we deconstruct it, we reconstruct it in a formulated room mm -hmm. where everything is exactly what it was every single time. You've consistent. got the recipe. It's absolutely beyond consistent, more consistent than the plant itself will ever yeah. be able to be. And now you're... Now you've got the, the best of both worlds. We didn't have to get rid of one. P humans just want to put up a fence all the time. Oh, monomolecular, no, full spectrum, no, monomolecular, no, broad yeah. spectrum. It's like, oh, yeah. my God, you guys are fighting for the same plant. Like, let, you can both have that. Right. It doesn't tools. have to be It doesn't have to be one or the other, which is the, the part that I just some, sometimes want to bang my head because people, we, we just want to pick what we want, you know, and that took me a long time being a water hash and a solvent guy. Now I'm at the point where I, of course, would fight for anyone's right to extract any way that they want. I would fight for the BHO guys and fight for the CO2 guys and fight for the ethanol guys because they all, we all have our choices and our personal preferences and I want them all to be available because what better way to choose when they're all actually available for you to choose where you can actually make a choice and say, hey, this medicine works for me or whether it's recreational, it's, it's, it reduces my anxiety and my stress and it works for me for what I want. So I like the idea of all of these things being uh, made available and I, I try not to get myself stuck in a position where... I'm choosing what is best. What's best for me is certainly not what is best for you. Yep. Yeah, I think that's yeah an excellent way to to sum that up. The way I view it is all of all of this are you know it's all tools in the tool chest um, with appropriate applications and you know things that are going to be ideal for one person or another. And um, I'm very much of the same mind, but I think there's there's definitely room for isolates and standardized formulations. You need standardization. You need consistent products, uh, particularly for people that are in a dire need for cannabinoids and they can't afford for the next batch to be substantially different. Um, you know, so yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's room for everything. And I know we're, we're getting at almost an hour 15 here. I want to be respectful of your time. I've got one last question to kind of wrap things up, which is, um, what are you kind of focused on now? What are you excited about now and, and looking into the future? And um, yeah, what, what projects um, do you see on the horizon? 
I'm most excited about uh, my Whistler Technologies and my Embark Health. I'm hoping on getting my brand into the Canadian market, which is Bubble Man brand. I'd love to be able to sell hash in Canada for the first time in over 20 years after teaching everyone how to make it and produce it on their own. I think that would be very, very sweet. I'm quite looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, working with Segra, the tissue culture company, I'm hoping Mm. to uh, take on more responsibilities with them and help facilitate. I think it's absolutely the future of cannabis because I know it's the present of all clonally produced plants on the planet right now. So between those three things, that's a lot on my plate. I'm quite excited about all that. And uh, for anyone sitting on the West Coast right now listening to this, I'm sure you're probably aware, but in about a minute and 45 seconds, the clock will hit 420. And I I hope that you have something rolled or packed or ready to vaporize because uh, what better thing to enjoy in life than a nice bowl of full mouth hash or a beautiful spliff uh, while listening to, uh, to, to Jason's podcast. Oh, that is an excellent way to cap all of this off. That's uh, so observant of you. I didn't realize we're coming up close on the time. Let's go ahead and uh, get this wrapped up in the next minute. Um, well, Marcus, it's been a delight to finally cross paths with you. Like I said, it's been so, it's so fascinating for me on the podcast side to have been indirectly connected to so many people in the industry through reading your writing, seeing your photos, you know, reading forums and learning about hash making, all these different things. And then to finally um, cross paths with you, it's super cool for me. And honestly, kind of surreal in a way that I've been able to have the opportunity to talk to so many you know awesome knowledgeable people so thanks so much for being willing to uh sacrifice your time and energy to come on the podcast today and i look forward to following your work and maybe we'll catch up again some other day yeah thanks so much for having me on jason i uh, appreciate your time as well it was uh, indeed an honor to share some time with you on your podcast and with your audience and uh i'll finish it how i finish all my shows uh may the Perfect. full melt bless your bowl sooner than later That's perfect, everybody. Awesome. All right, everybody, stay curious and take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. To support the show and get access to an exclusive members-only podcast feed, access to private events, merchandise discounts, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash curious about cannabis.